The Money Show with Motel Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Africa Financial Markets Index. Now, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Good evening and welcome to the Monday edition of The Money Show. My name is Mateo Kwaripe. In for Bruce this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been quite a busy Monday. Uh, reports of another executive leaving embattled state rail and logistics firm Transnet, Ali Montala, who was the managing head of the group's export coal line said to have resigned today and the South African Reserve Bank still has one more interest rate announcement before the year ends and I'm sure we're all crossing our fingers hoping it stays the same or even a cut Uh, but of course that's just dreaming hey and it seems it might be the last meeting for Deputy Governor Kuben Naidu. Now Kuben Naidu tended his resignation to President Sir Ramaphosa uh, today and the President says his request to resign is still under review, we'll chat to Gwoki Goiman, uh, rather, Executive Director at Portfolio Manager at Denka Capital, on what that resignation will mean for the Saab and also the makeup of the Monetary Policy Committee. Then here's a question I want to pose to you. I mean, do you think CEOs or board members are paid way too much in the country when you look at the bonuses hundreds of millions that is paid to ceos or the board members uh, that sit on these boards do they deserve the big bucks they're getting or are you a person that looks at it and says look there's a lot of pressure and sleepless nights that come with the job so it is of course warranted that they get and earn that much uh, you can call us on 011-883-0702 or call us on 021-446-0567 or if you want to whatsapp us and give us a voice note on 072-702-1702. The Money Show with Motel Kwaribe on 702. 702. Getting ahead of myself there. There are also new proposed remuneration rules uh, under legal scrutiny in South Africa. Nicola Milan, Managing Director and Corporate and Commercial Law Expert at Milan Schools Attorneys, will look at uh, those uh, changed uh, proposed remuneration rules. And then we look at the Competition Commission's investigation into the effects of technology and social media on traditional uh, news media in the country. Chris Charter, Director in the Competition Practice Area at Cliff Deck Hofmeyer, uh, joins us for that conversation. Later on in studio, in the feature How I Make My Money, we're going to be talking with a consumer experience specialist, uh, Natalie Schooling. That's all on The Money Show tonight. The Money Show will give you all the tools you need to navigate the complicated world of economics and commerce, even if you're not a numbers person. The Money Show with Motel Faribe. 6 to 8 p.m. Making money makes sense. On 702 and Cape Talk. Well, Deputy Governor of the South African Reserve Bank, Kuber Naidu, has handed in his resignation to President Sir Ramaphosa. Naidu's second five-year contract was due to end in March of 2025. The Deputy Governor is part of the five members that make up the Monetary Policy Committee that desi- decides on interest rates in the country. Naidu is also currently overseeing the Financial Stability and Currency Cluster at the Saab. The Presidency says his resignation is still being reviewed. Uh, we're chatting now to Goki Goyman, Executive Director and Portfolio Manager at Danker Capital. 
Koki, looking at uh, the fact that Alisa uh, Jahanyaho's tenure comes to an end next year, the pool to find the next governor, at least, and the deputy governor, and to make up that MPC uh, committee is becoming a bit of a problem for government. Yes, no, indeed. Uh, I think the timing of Kuben uh, tendering is a recognition now, as you say. Uh, with Lasetja's uh, end of his contract uh, coming up next year is crucial, especially the role that the Reserve Bank has been playing, um, especially this year, because there's been a lot of talk on uh, that they must play ball, so to speak, and not hike interest rates. And uh, so because that obviously has a big impact on on the budget, uh, interest expenses are very, very a big and growing in our budget um, and he's been actually very good at explaining what the role is of the central bank or the reserve bank and why um, you cannot have the central bank or reserve bank working with government it must always be independent uh, and, and as its uh, mandate says without fear, favor or prejudice so at this point in time with Kuben resigning now or tendering resignation is, is that's a big pity. He, he has uh, fulfilled a lot of roles. Uh, he's been there uh, actually 10 years, since 2015 as deputy governor. Um, and before that, he was at the National Planning Secretariat and also 12 years at National Treasury. But the important thing, he was also um, you know, the uh, registrar of banks. He, he had uh, he fulfilled a, a big role there um, in various of the other units, the FinTech unit, the National Payment System, Risk Management Compliance. It's a long list. And, <laughs> and so you can, he's very important. And it's pretty that he, he, he needs to be replaced now. Quite important uh, as well, looking at the MPC, I mean, the last vote uh, to keep rates unchanged at 8.25% was a 3-2 split. And if he then resigns and leaves, the MPC is left with four members. Do we know what would happen if it would be a 2-2 split in terms of the vote on interest rates? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I actually... Don't know, uh, but I think they will have to get a temporary member, and I'd actually, I haven't read up on on the rules in that regard. But I'm sure they'll make sure that it's an uneven number. Uh, or I'll just go back and say, listen, we 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 discuss more and and vote tomorrow because that interest rate hike is obviously a key part of its mandate of protecting the value of the currency, but in the interest of sustainable economic growth. And 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 there's a lot of you know, information that goes into that decision. But then obviously there is uh, obviously sometimes prejudices, sometimes biases. So it's a good question. Uh, I actually don't know what would happen, but I think they would either ask him to stay until a a replacement has been found um, and also on the Monetary Policy Committee. And looking at the other governors, uh, Fundi Chazibana and yes. also Rash- Ra- Rashad Kasim, sorry, would uh, they be uh, other candidates uh, that could be replacing Khanyaho then when he leaves next year? Because, of course, with uh, Kuben now leaving uh, the setup, it would leave either the, the, the reappointment of Khanyaho or the other deputy uh, governors. Yeah, no, you're quite right. The, 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 
the logical thought would often be uh, the deputy governors, um, as in, in any business, your succession planning, uh, your deputy CEO is appointed also for the role of not only technical expertise and role, but also just to test him or her in that role. So um, the Lesage himself came from National Treasury, and so did Kuben before, uh, well, he was only two years at, at the Reserve Bank before he got the deputy governorship. Um, but, yeah, the first the first look should be at the current deputy governors, and Fundi obviously, you know, is the most senior now um, after Lesetia and Kuben uh, are gone. Well, uh, that was Akoki Koima, an executive director and portfolio manager at Denker Capital, talking about the news that uh, Kuben Naidu, the deputy governor at the South African Reserve Bank, has tendered his resignation with uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa. Of course, Naidu's second five-year contract was due to end only in March of 2025. Uh, we know that Lesenja uh, Khanyaho is also uh, set to see his contract end next year. Of course, that pool of deputy governors and governors not the biggest at the moment and uh, trying to get a replacement for Akhanyaho will be a tough one for Treasury and government coming up. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. Hey, Mateo! <laughs> That's funny. People talk about pronunciation. Uh, hey, the word remuneration is killing you, eh? You keep on saying remuneration. Uh, yeah, but all fun. Listen, with Kuban leaving, I think it's actually a good thing for us consumers because it means that they don't have the quota and um, they won't be able to vote on the next interest rates because we know what's going to happen there. Or am I wrong? Brilliant show, man. Cheers. Well, still looking at uh, that particular makeup of the MPC, and I and I get what you what you're saying with Kubena away. Maybe it might make them uh, have a, a an equal vote on either cutting or increasing interest rates. So it might work out for the consumer, like you suggest, but also it could be um, you know a negative one for the consumer if maybe let's say three of them decide uh, that uh, rates should be going up instead of having that that split that we we usually have with the three two split there are of course uh, some talks on how uh, Kuben was at the time uh, the market uh, views him as somebody that was more dovish uh, while Lisa uh, uh looked to be more blunt when it comes to interest rates so that split will be very interesting uh, but like uh, Koki Goyman was saying earlier on in our conversation uh, that you know they'll probably look for an interim member to try and balance out that number so we still have a 3-2 split in the MPC. You're with Motel Faribe on 702 and Cape Talk. And welcome to it, of course. Uh, thank you again for joining us on The Money Show. Looking now at, uh, you know, some of the things that could change on the markets in terms of all the things that we've been looking at, including the U.S. markets, we've seen those bond yields go up to 5% at least last week, Thursday. That rattled the markets a bit. Uh, U.S. markets opening weaker today as uh, that uh, psychological level of 5% was hit again. What do these all mean? Uh, the Treasury yields, the 10-year Treasury yields and uh, the inverted curve. And what does that mean for emerging economies like South Africa and the global economy? We're now joined by Russell Silver. 
Silberston, uh, who is the 91 investment strategist looking at those bond yields in the U.S. and how they're affecting the rest of the world. Uh, Russell, welcome again to The Money Show. That 5% level was hit on Thursday, touched again today. What does this mean in terms of the bond yields? Maybe let's start explaining uh, what that 10-year Treasury yield is. Yeah, absolutely. Good evening, Mateo. Um, absolutely. So, so bonds, bonds actually are, are pretty basic things. You know, they're, they're, they're long-term obligations um, of, of borrowers, in this case, governments. So for a major economy government bond market like the US, where there's pretty much no credit risk, there's just two moving parts. Uh, the implied inflation um, and what we call the, the, the real interest rate. Um, and, and so, you know, intrinsically, they're quite simple things. That sort of real rate can be broken down into a global real rate, which 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 actually affects your own market there as well. A sort of domestic real rate, and and a sort of a local monetary policy rate. Uh, and 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 the way we've been looking at this, you know, given actually that implied inflation is not changed that much. It's gone up a little bit over the last quarter. It hasn't changed that much. What's really happening is that real interest rates are rising um, very quickly uh, and un- unprecedentedly so. So this, this is a worry and that's really what's driving the bond market is a reassessment of, of, of real rates and I think we're sort of slightly sceptical as, as to the underlying sort of reasons for that. Bonds are usually like low risk investments. So what happens if we see like we are now that 5% uh, level when it comes to treasury yields? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, I think it depends on your age whether you consider bonds a, uh, a safe and secure investment, right? Uh, I, I, this is my 42nd year working in the city of London, so I've, I've seen some good old bond market sell-offs. Um, and, and, and you're right, you know, generally it should be fixed interest, you know, pays, pays you a modest return. But, um, you know, this is unprecedented. We've gone from, from sort of zero rates to, to 5% pretty much in a straight line. So, you know, we've racked up some significant losses both in in, in, in capital uh, and obviously talk, talk on uh, interest as well. So it, serious losses. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is raising borrowing costs around the world. I talked about a global, uh, a global real rate as one of the sort of inputs into to what a bond yield is. That's going to affect everyone. Um, and and, and it, you know, there's a high correlation of what's happening in the US to, 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 um, you know, to, to markets around the world. So higher rates, uh, increased borrowing rates, you know, all things being equal, that is going to slow growth. Uh, and, and, and that's certainly one of our views. It's a, it's a real headwind to, to, to economic growth going forward. And uh, when we look at bonds themselves, I mean, investors who put their money in treasury uh, bonds are essentially borrowing the U.S. government money. And why would the U.S. government need money? Because uh, I'm thinking, would war play a part in, um, you know, those yields going up? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, potentially, but but I mean, the really when when you look at anyone's, um, essentially, the, the the U.S. is is spending more than uh, it's receiving in, in in income tax. You know, the only way a government generally can 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 raise funds is is to to increase uh, taxation. Um, and and you know, post COVID, the U.S. has gone on a massive borrowing binge. It literally sent you know checks to people in the post. Um, but the, on a day to day basis, the, the big drain on the government finances of things like um, sort of medical aid uh, and, 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 and pensions. And of course, as the US population ages, 
you know, that stuff just goes up. So there's a, you know, there's a structural sort of deficit in that US economy. And, 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 and that could certainly be, um, I think, one of the issues that the borrowers are focusing on. But as I say, again, we're sort of skeptical that people have suddenly changed their mind on this. You know, this is slow moving stuff. Um, and, 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 and um, you know, they have to address their budget deficit eventually. But, you know, we're skeptical that that, that sort of thing is moving markets in, in, in the very short term. It's a possibility. It's, is this 5% level a risk uh, for the US Fed? I mean, looking at the target they they want to get to in terms of inflation at 2% and also, um, you know, the possible increase in interest rates in the US and how what bearing does that have for emerging markets like South Africa? Yeah, no, absolutely. Look, I, I, if you go back to a, a sort of, um, you know, an interest rate, uh, a day-to-day interest, a short-dated interest rate, the sort of neutral rate, the, the rate's not too hot, not too cold for an economy. In the US, it's, if you Fed think it's two and a half, it's probably near a three percent at the moment. So interest rates of five percent will be slowing growth. Okay, um, and so that's the first thing. To say. So monetary policy is is we think pretty restrictive. It's only just turned restrictive, but it's restrictive. That um, is, is is going to have a knock-on effect. You know, the US economy is still the largest in the world. Um, if if these rates really begin to slow uh, the, the, the economy and, and, and a recession is around the corner, and we think there are increasing signs of that, then you know I think all bets are off. You know, China growth is struggling. The eurozone is probably already in recession. Uh, if the US tips over into a slowdown or even a recession, um, you know the knock-on effects globally and and, and, and you know to, to South Africa as, as, as a big sort of commodity-producing uh, economy, no doubt whatsoever that, that, that you know it will impact our economy there. So you know. It sounds a little bit distant and esoteric, but you know this is this is the global interest rate we're talking about here. U.S. Treasuries and, and, and a sell-off of this magnitude will will, will will cause problems around the world at some stage. Well, Russell, there is a flu bug going around in South Africa, and it seems like it's one of those we're going to be catching from the U.S. quite soon. Uh, Russell Silberston uh, is the 91 investment strategist in London. The Money Show. The Markets. Peter Brook, Portfolio Manager at Old Mutual Investment, covering the markets with us today. The JSE ending the day in negative territory, really pulled down by mining shares that were down more than 2%. Uh, financials were up more than a half a percent with industrials in positive territory. And something you don't see every day, uh, Peter, Textana, the uh, lease of uh, containers, up more than 40%. Uh, what happened there? Uh, here there's a big deal that's coming through there with the company privatizing. Yes, that's right. Um, so there's a bid for the entire company from, um, as, as you may well know, they do shipping containers, which is a very long-term asset, which has got quite um, good cash flow. It's, it's very much a financial type business where you've got um, a lot of stock in there. And it, that is an attractive asset to a certain type of financial buyer. And they bid for that. My, I mean, the good news is um, some shareholders are a lot richer today. The bad news is this is another delisting from the JSC. And why would a company that's relatively doing well want to go private then? Uh, is it because of the buyout or is this something that was the scope for the company? Well, at the end of the day, there's an offer from, from a potential buyer. They're offering a very big premium. So the board can either... Um, refuse it or embrace it. In this case, the board has been positive. They're saying this is good for the company. It gives them um, a better future. But at the end of the day, it's up to shareholders to decide. So they can either sell their shares or not. So we've had some failed bids. 
this one I think will probably go through unless we we see another buyer come up and offer to pay a higher price. Of course, uh, Textana shares spiking more than 40% on that deal of 7.4 billion rand from Stone Peak uh, uh, taking over Textana. Uh, but looking at Sassel, they came through today saying Transnet's logistics failings are still a risk to the business. That's right. So you can see in terms of their export volumes um, of, of coal that there wasn't much uh, progress there. And I think this is a standard problem that we're well aware of. But the good news in terms of their um, statement was that their sin fuel volumes are up 7% and they seem to be getting on control of their own coal issues. So this is coal that's being mined that is feeding into the Secundus sin fuel plant. And looking at the likes of Pick and Pay, they were up uh, close to 8% today. Another retailer, Truards and Spa, also up 3%. Uh, Really, the retailers having a a better day on, on Monday. Yeah, um, look, pick and pay is not, an, uh, not a great one because it's obviously been down hugely last week on the back of um, the management changes and further information on the trading statement. But broadly, I would agree with you, you can see a very clear bias within the market towards um, more SA Inc. type shares, um, retailers, financials doing better and resources on the downside. And on Friday, of course, uh, Tiger Brands announcing a new CEO to come through and uh, take over the business. They have had their fair bit of bad news and uh, deciding to change the strategy now. Yeah, so Tiger Brands is interesting because actually they produced, a, at the same time, they produced quite a good trading statement relative to market expectations, which were for um, some fairly bad numbers. So that helped. Um, you've also then got the does the market like the new CEO strategy? Um, we, we obviously had the big fall in pick and pays price when they, when they removed their CEO. So, Personally, I, I'm intrigued by this, by this change because what you've got is you've actually got Nold Oil who um, took over, sort of stabilized the ship, has improved the metrics a little bit, but clearly from the statement, you can see the board is sort of looking for somebody to push the growth um, faster and to sort of revitalize the company. Yet they've, and they've chosen Chart Kruger, who very successfully helped Premier drive their bread business, which is obviously a big part of Tiger Brand. But he's, he's relatively older. And once again, we seem to be recycling CEOs from the past when, when things were a bit easier in South Africa. But he's got a fixed contract. So I see this very much as a strategy to bring um, as a transition strategy whereby they'll then... So they're buying time before they get a permanency of these. Exactly. All right, we'll see how that pans out. Of course, uh, Nuld Oil had been at at Tiger Brands for quite a long time. The company announcing that he'd be leaving on Friday. Peter Brook, Portfolio Manager at Old Mutual Investment Group, covering the markets today. The Money Show with Motel Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. Now, I don't know if you have the same bad habit that I do. When I wake up, I always want to go to social media to scroll and find all the news media on 
on X or it, is it Twitter these days or on my Instagram. I often access Bloomberg on my Instagram first to watch some of the videos and analysis and also get the latest stories. But it seems uh, the South African Competition Commission wants to have a good look at this. The Competition Commission announcing that the media and digital platforms market inquiry uh, will be looking to uh, over concerns that platforms such as Google, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it these days, and others have their unfair advantages and market practices which are damaging South Africa's news media sector. Now we're chatting to Chris Charter, the director in the competition practice area at Cliff Decker Hofmeyer. Chris, what is the um, you know target of this particular investigation? What are they trying to find with the scope of this uh, investigation? Hi, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. Um, the the commission is is looking. Uh very closely at digital markets in general all over the world. And I think that's really a factor of us uh, and the whole world having moved very much online in terms of how we access products and services, and in this case, how we access our, our news media. And so what they've become concerned with, and this follows from uh, investigations in, in other jurisdictions around the world, is, is the fact that increasingly we are dependent on getting our news from digital platforms. Now, whether that means you search on Google uh, for the latest news or whether you make use of a news aggregator uh, app that sort of sends you your, your, your news feed or whether you just rely on social media, as you were saying. Uh, the concern is that that has fundamentally changed the way in which publishers of media, and in particular news reports, can access consumers. And increasingly, uh, both consumers and those publishers of news media are, are dependent on those big platforms, which basically drive uh, traffic. And, and this is really the, the nub of what the commission is looking at. They're concerned that all of this is going to result in an unfair allocation of advertising revenue, in potential conflicts of interest between the platforms and the, uh, and the media publishers. And ultimately, that might uh, reduce the, the, the quality and reliability of the, of the news that, that, that you and I have access to. So for somebody who still buys newspapers and still goes on social media, this might not be a problem. But if you're completely reliant on social media platforms to get your news, what you're saying um, or what I'm getting from what you're saying is that these companies like uh, Google, for instance, X can use an algorithm and um, you know, promote one news media instead of another. That's right. That's very much, that's very much part of it. Um, and, and I have to say, if you can find that one person who's still getting most of their news from, from print media, I'd be, I'd be happy to meet her. But, um, but ultimately, I think we all are pretty much addicted to, to the, the really fast delivery that we get through social media. I mean, the, the, uh, the terms of reference for this particular market inquiry point out that since 2017, the number of cell phones and smartphones in South Africa has gone from 30 million to 60 million. So the number of people who are now online has just exponentially increased. And, and uh, it's, it's becoming uh, very difficult for, for uh, news outlets to actually get their news to consumers without using a digital platform at some level. Now, these um, social media platforms are gigantic. These are some of the biggest tech companies in the world. They have the treasure chest, um, you know, in, in, to, to change the news media, if it were. Um, you know, is the Competition Commission also looking at the revenue losses of some of the older traditional news media, but also the smaller guy uh, who's uh, into digital media, but could be forced out uh, by way of uh, like an algorithm or whether they get to be on top of the Google search? 
Absolutely. I mean, the commission is concerned with both of those things. So in the first instance, to make sure that your, your traditional and even a well-established South African uh, news publisher um, increasingly you know, needs to invest uh, in its newsroom. It also needs to make investments in trying to better understand and market its news digitally. Both of those things cost money. They are under tremendous pressure because they're advertising revenue in the traditional sense. You know, you're, on, you're, you're classified through your print media and your, your printed advertising is, is declining. Um, and, so, and so the concern is that as they become dependent on, on aggregators, um, that uh, an unfair proportion of, of the ad revenue, if not all of it, is being appropriated by those big platforms. There's a clear conflict of interest when, uh, when Google, for instance, is getting paid by advertisers uh, for the amount of time that people spend on its website. Um, and, and so too with, with, with Apple News, et cetera. Um, and of course, there's little incentive to then drive that traffic back to the original website of the, of the, of the, content, uh, the content producer. And that's, that's problem number one. But problem number two, as you, as you, as you, as you well express, is, is this concern that is all of this, in fact, really making life particularly difficult for new entrants. Um, and particularly those, those smaller uh, news producers who might be trying to, you know, to reach a smaller community. Uh, they might be sort of more public interest focused and they might be trying to, to, to generate uh, news content in, in one of our official languages other than English. And, and they really have the toughest time of all in terms of breaking into that digital space. Uh, and the commission is very concerned to make sure that they, that they do have, have reduced barriers to entry. And then finally, you know, everybody in South Africa who's producing news is competing increasingly with the likes of the New York Times and the BBC and CNN, who also increasingly access consumers in, in this country directly in terms, of, in terms of feeding news to them. And, and the, the concern is, you know, where does that leave uh, local news uh, producers uh, relative to the international ones? Are there any other competition authorities around the world who've had similar studies and what are some of their findings or learnings that uh, could help the Competition Commission uh, have at least something to compare to? So everybody um, and their dog, really, frankly, is looking closely into, into the digital media space um, and, and digital markets. It is uh, the new frontier for, for reaching consumers, not just in regard to, to news, but, but products and services generally. So you've seen a lot of a lot of uh, regulators throughout the world starting to look very carefully at digital markets and, and uh, a lot of imposed new rules, a lot of sought to deploy new tools of enforcement. Um, and I suppose key amongst those is, is, is in Europe, um, where uh, the European Union has recently introduced new laws relating to, to copyright to ensure fair payment to, to sort of news publishers for, for news that is used. Uh, by the likes of Google or Facebook or any other sort of big platform um, to to generate the kind of uh, engagement that you need in the in the in the digital and social media space. So there have been attempts to regulate. One of the big difficulties, though, is you know as you see, for instance, the Australian authorities or the Canadian authorities uh, imposing regulations on that require Google, for instance, to to share uh, more fairly its, its its revenue streams and even its data. Uh, with with uh, news publishers, um, on, on many occasions, uh, those big platforms have just said, "Well, in that case, we won't do business in Canada or Australia." So what's happened is a lot of the the uh, the regulators all over the world are now trying to really coordinate their attack. Much more difficult if you are if you are Google or Meta or X uh, to to outmaneuver, you know, a dozen two dozen regulators who are all starting to impose the same kind of 
the same kind of treatment. So it's very much in line uh, with what is happening overseas and in other jurisdictions. And it really is kind of part of a global regulatory movement to just watch a little bit more carefully uh, that, that these massive platforms that we all rely on so heavily uh, aren't unfairly distorting the market and that we can continue to get good quality uh, news reporting all around the world that isn't, isn't uh, you know, just, just a, a soundbite. And, and we're trying to eliminate the kind of disinformation and misinformation that is becoming, unfortunately, I think, a hallmark of, of all of our news feeds. Such a tough thing to do. I mean, with technology being such a disruptor, if you look at ChatGPT and the information that it collates uh, from the rest of the internet, um, you know, there could be worries that is, is it getting information from fake news sites sometimes or maybe even not paying those publishers that have put out a strong investigative work. Uh, so as there's a lot uh, the scope still has to cover. Absolutely. And, and the commission perhaps ambitiously has actually added uh, sort of, you know, AI um, and these large language models like ChatGPT to the scope of its inquiry. Um, I think probably in the sense that it's trying to get a handle on on how that particular technology might disrupt the, you know, both the, the dissemination of news and also the creation of news to a certain extent. And I think one of the concerns is as, as, as news publishers lose control over what happens with their content, whether that's because, you know, Google is, 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 is sending it through to, to, uh, to the consumers or because uh, AI and ChatGPT are starting to actually summarize and create this news content. There is concern that, that uh, not only will, will AI uh, usurp a lot of the, the sort of copyright and, and revenue streams from traditional media outlets, um, but also that the quality of the news may actually suffer um, as, 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 as the summaries that a large language model will do isn't really geared towards finding or, or in fact broadcasting the truth, but rather just to put together a story that, uh, that sounds plausible and that people are more likely to, to click on and engage with. And just lastly, uh, Chris, the Competition Commission has fast-tracked this particular investigation. Uh, any reason why they're in such a hurry? Yeah, I, I would say, generally speaking, the Commission is in a hurry. Um, the Competition Act does require them now to complete market inquiries within 18 months, ideally. And that is really you know, a, a, a quick turnaround time, considering the amount of public information they have to gather, they have to make space for public hearings and various responses. Um, so, so generally speaking, these things are taking place a lot more quickly than they, than they perhaps could in order to, to gather all the information. But as you said, these digital markets move extremely quickly and the, the rate of disruption is, is, uh, is, is, is incredible. So there is some sense to have to try and do this as quickly as possible. Um, they'll probably get it right because a lot of the regulation is, is kind of you know, a template they can borrow from other jurisdictions. Um, so perhaps in terms of the actual remedies, they have already a very good sense of, of what those remedies should look like. But I think it is ambitious. Uh, the timeline is very ambitious. A lot of the key uh, information gathering is set to take place between now and the 15th of January. And you can just imagine how difficult it is going to be for the commission to get uh, various stakeholders to, to focus yeah. over the period and with all the pressures we're facing this time of year and give them any kind of meaningful uh, information. So I think it remains to be seen whether they can meet their own deadline for, um, for January 2025. All right. That was uh, Chris Charter, director in the competition practice area at Cliff Decker Hofmeyer, looking at that competition commission uh, investigation into social media platforms. You're with Motel Faribe on 702 and Cape Talk.
The Money Show with uh, Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Getting into tech with Toby now, with Toby Shepshank, the chief at Stuff Studios. The last time we spoke about camping, uh, Toby, and the tech that comes with camping these days, we spoke about a monster of a car in the Ford Everest. But looking at more practical tools when you are camping, uh, this Xiaomi multifunctional camping lantern. Anyone who's been a camper for years will tell you they still use that old uh, battery-powered torch. Why is this particular lantern special? Well, I I think what's great about this this lantern is just how smart it is. I mean, do you need a smart device when you're going camping? I haven't gone camping with it yet, but I can tell you that it's been very uh, useful since I got it last week. What's great about it is that it does what it's supposed to do and it does it very well, but it's also rechargeable and it uses USB-C. So it recharges very fast, um, but it's not one uh, lantern. It's got a torch built into it, which is itself uh, a really handy extra feature. Um, but of course, you know, part of the problem with uh the state of ESCOM and the you know the state of power supplies that most of us are camping when we're at home. So this I think is a really great camping device, but also when you're at home for using when the lights are out. And here's something that's going to be very controversial now with the next product I'm going to talk about the Xiaomi Mi portable Bluetooth speaker. Any camping head will tell you you shouldn't be taking devices like this to camping. Uh, why would this be one that one would uh, throw in their bag with their with their camping equipment? Well, you 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 know you've 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 got it right, Matteo. There is a is an etiquette to uh, to being in the bush. So so mild, um, soft music is I think acceptable as long as you can't hear it in the campsite or anywhere next to you. Um, but it's also the kind of thing that's like very handy. You know, when my son was in a pram, I used to have a little Bluetooth speaker and play him, you know, the, you know, noises to make him sleep. I don't know if it really helped or not, but nonetheless, uh, it's one of those things you want to take with you, not just when you're going camping, but when you're going, uh, traveling of any kind. And yeah. I, you know, I used to travel a lot pre COVID. I'm going overseas to my favorite city in the world, Barcelona in a couple of weeks. I always take a, 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 a Bluetooth speaker with me and I've been searching for ages, not necessarily for, for camping, but just for traveling a really good speaker that I can get, you know, decent sound out of. I listen to a lot of audio books when I'm in a hotel room. I like to have a bit of background noise or listen to an audio book or a podcast or just music. And this is really fantastic. The, the Xiaomi Mi portable Bluetooth speaker that put in the word portable. I assume that's obvious. What's great about it is it's really compact. It's, it's, it only weighs 189, 85 grams. Um, it's IP67 dust proof and water resistant. So you can splash water on it, but you can't throw it in the pool, uh, or you wouldn't want to. Um, and what's great is that it's got 10 hours of, of, of music. They say it's 60% volume. I haven't tried that yet. 
But it's got a decent sound for what it is. A lot of the small compact speakers I've been trying out are, are circular and they, you know, they use yeah. the, the sound comes out the top and the bottom. That's a very clever use of the available space and technology. This little Xiaomi puck, as we called it, because of its, its, uh, it, it looks What's very it much it? like a puck. Um, we, we, you know, we were very impressed with the sound quality of that. And it's, and it's, it's got a little lanyard that's elasticized or a little hook that you can hang it onto something. I think that's useful. Um, you're probably right. I shouldn't be taking a camping. Um, and I won't admit on radio ever again that I took a Bluetooth speaker camping and I didn't turn it on, Your, your Honor. Okay, um, let me take you out of your yeah, misery, I mean, uh, Toby. <laughs> that is what we had uh, for so far. Unfortunately, running out of time there with uh, tech, uh, with Toby. Toby Shabshak, the chief at Stuff Studios. Um, camping equipment for the modern man and woman. If you want to take uh, the Bluetooth speaker, uh, you know which one to grab. The Money Show with Motel Haripe on 702. Let's walk the talk. Looking at executive pay now, I asked you the question earlier, do you really care how much the board of directors get paid? Uh, the huge bonuses, some of them get paid. I mean, looking at uh, this uh, particular study, an examination of all fees paid to JSE non-executive directors shows that the average salary was at $1.7 million for chairpersons on JSE listed companies. That, is this something that bothers you or do you look at it and say, well, it comes with the territory. Uh, some of the uh, chairpersons are you know, under pressure having sleepless nights, making tough decisions for, for these companies. So it doesn't really care, matter to me how much they get paid. We'll get into that conversation in a short while. You're with Motel Faribe on 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Africa Financial Markets Index, cultivating growth by providing a clearer understanding of the African markets. APSA is a registered FSP. Now, the amendments to directors' remuneration rules as set out in the recently published Companies Amendment Bill have captured the attention of various industry experts, sounding alarms due to their potential how they would disincentivize a competent individuals on boards and making it tough for South African companies, especially those listed to compete with international ones in order, uh, you know, to, um, you know, attract better talent into the country and sitting on those boards. Uh, to take on this conversation with me is Nicola Malan, the uh, managing uh, director and corporate and commercial law expert at Milan School's attorneys. Uh, looking at this particular bill, what is it exactly saying about, um, you know, directors on boards and how much they get paid? Is it looking at the pay gap or whether they should be more transparent with the amount that they're getting? Hi, Mathieu. Um Essentially, the additional disclosure requirements don't uh, uh, relate to the pay gap. There's already a lot of... Uh, 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 the, the, the company that currently provides for disclosures to, ma- to be made um, relating to directors' remuneration, but the bill provides for additional disclosures, specifically in relation to, for example, the remuneration of the top 5% of the highest paid employees versus that of the lowest um, 5%, and the, the, the CEO versus the, the individual with the lowest um, remuneration. So, so it really focuses on that kind of disclosure, what the pay gap is um, of the employees in the organization. And how, what potential effects would this bill have then um, if, if it is taken on? Uh, would it mean that a lot of uh, companies won't be able to compete, especially with international companies when it comes to paying for such talent? 
Well, well, the question is, what would what would the implications be be of this disclosure? There's numerous pros and cons um, um, made. Um, on the one hand, people are saying, well, we are in a very unequal, we live in a very unequal society, and the additional disclosure is aimed to reduce the pay gap. That's the that's the argument for the additional disclosure. The argument against the additional disclosure is that, you know, it may relate to um, labor unhappiness and individual directors will be criticized um, and will be uh, subject to criticism for their salaries. Um, and that may deter them from actually taking up board positions is the argument. Um, there are other amendments to the, to the Companies Act uh, as well, which may deter um, directors from taking up the position. That specifically relates to the approval of the remuneration um, policy of the company as well as the imp uh, implementation of that policy. They both have to now be approved by ordinary resolution, which is a change to the Companies Act. Um, if I say ordinary resolution, that, that's approval by the, by the shareholders. More than 50% of the shareholders have to approve it. So, so that also puts additional um, pressure on the board and specific, specifically on the remuneration committee. Um, and the remuneration committee consists primarily out of non-execs. And there are uh, implications if that's not approved, which is, uh, you know, again, may affect directors to take up board positions. And how much power then does the company's amendment bill give to shareholders, um, you know, in, in this current form? If if it does go through, um, you know, the Companies Act to say no shareholders, more than 50% of them should decide who's on the board and how much uh, they get paid. Is that not a good thing? Um, it is a good thing. It is a good thing to... For, for shareholders to to look at what the remuneration should be and to decide whether they you know whether whether they're happy with it let me just make it clear it's not the the, the shareholders are entitled to to approve the director's fees that's a special resolution yeah. that's that's one thing with regards to the remuneration itself of directors that's not approved by shareholders it's the policy that's approved so the remuneration report which consists of what is taken into consideration? What are the policy determinations for the board to determine uh, to be included in the report that the shareholders then approve? And in, in, as part of the remuneration report, there's something that's called an implementation report. That's post, you know, after the 12-year period, then, then the shareholders are given this implementation report. Here, this is what we've paid. This is uh, a breakdown of the remuneration. That then has to be approved. Um, it's, so it's not the actual remuneration is whether it's whether the remuneration committee um, implemented the remuneration policy correctly. So if they then decide they're not happy with it, then the implica implica implication currently, as the, as the um, amendments currently read, is that the remuneration policy, uh, sorry, the re remuneration committee members, the non-executive directors have to resign. They can't then be on that committee for the following three years. That's a bit harsh and a bit problematic because they can still be on the board, but you, you need to then appoint other members to your remuneration committee. And that's easier said than done because companies may not have a sufficient number of uh, non-executive directors to then be members of that remuneration committee. So they now would have to go to the market and find other uh, independent or, or non-executive directors. So that becomes tricky. 
And when you look at the talent that is there to go around in terms of the, the board members and directors that sit uh, at some of these company boards, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, companies out there, international ones, even local ones, looking for, for such talent. So if you find yourself in a situation where a company, for instance, has to tow this particular line with the bill, uh, do you think uh, talent would go elsewhere just to avoid the, the policy and the structure that, that it comes with? I think that is a risk. I think it may just be easier for for um, people to decide, well, I'll rather go to an international company where there isn't this kind of excessive or, uh, you know, the, 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 the extensive disclosure on the one hand and where the effects of the remuneration committees uh, non-approved, you know, where they look at the remuneration committee differently. Um, Australia, for example, I know has a sort of a two-tiered approach. That it's not if a policy isn't uh, uh, implementation policy isn't approved, you're not off immediately. You get a, sort of another bite at the cherry. It's, it's it's actually one of the recommendations that are that have been made to government to say please reconsider this. It's not necessarily practical the way that it's been proposed. And what uh, legal uh, hurdles do you foresee then as Milan Scholes attorneys in terms of this new bill and how it could affect the functioning and the corporate governance of companies? Um, I, I think um, there's going to have to be uh, a lot of focus on the remuneration uh, policy and, and the remuneration committee is going to have to be very clear as to how they apply the policy, how they implement it. There will probably have to be additional shareholder engagement to explain exactly how you know what the approach has been how um how the remuneration committee has gone about implementing the policy they're going to have to do a proper due diligence to justify the salaries a ben- proper benchmarking um and and, and they're going to have to engage with shareholders and uh, looking from uh, government's approach in terms of the company's amendment bill um you know this of course Yes, it looks like it's something good that should be coming in for shareholders to have a say in some of the companies and also with the transparency. But uh, can we find a balance between having the transparency and also having a less stringent system when it comes to company boards? I think that's exactly it. There should be a bit of a more, a, a, a bit more of a balance. I, I think disclosure is very good, but one must decide what needs to be disclosed and what the purpose of the disclosure is. I'm not sure that the extensive disclosure that's being required under the bill necessarily will have the effect um, uh, that that people wanted to have. So, so that's that's it on the one hand, um, and I, I think that the the non-approval by shareholders of, for example, the implementation report relating to the remuneration policy, the, the effect of that needs to be relooked. Um, I don't think it's practical that the remuneration committee members, specifically the non-exec, just you know have to step um, uh, step aside and, and can't be on the remuneration committee Three for years. the next two years. Yeah, it's, it's not practical. I think there needs to be a better balance. And would this particular bill affect uh, both state-owned companies and private ones? It affects public companies listed and non-listed, specifically these amendments that we're talking about, public companies listed and non-listed, and then also state-owned enterprises. 
All right, given the amount of time it takes to get some of this talent into companies, this will be a big bone of contention. Uh, Nicola Milan, a managing director and corporate and commercial law expert at Milan Schools Attorneys. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. APSA CIB proudly brings you the Africa Financial Markets Index. APSA is a registered FSP. Well, when he's not taking on politicians on air and asking the tough questions, broadcaster and presenter Clement Manyatela is an avid reader and I believe a part of a book reading club. Uh, tonight, he'll be, of course, the business book feature reviewer. Uh, looking at the book Blood Orange by Harriet Tice, it is one that is a hailed thriller and uh, I'm getting news that it's also going to become a TV series. Uh, welcoming now Clement Manyatela. Uh, welcome to The Money Show and uh, tell us more about this Blood Orange thriller that's uh, got you taking a deep dive between the covers. Yeah, thank you very much, Mateo. Um, it's, it's it's really an incredible book, and I say incredible because I, I have read a number of books, and as you've said, I'm part of a book club. So um, there's a number of books that we read, some books you like, some books not so much. And this one, I just finished reading it yesterday. And it, it really tells a story of tra- it's just tragedy, right? A failed marriage. Um, it tells a story of a great lawyer, a story of a brutal crime, of abuse, of an affair, of an obsession, of addiction. And what I've loved about Blood Orange is just how it takes you to every scene that this writer described. Harriet Tice is, of course, the author of this book. And I myself felt every single emotion that he descri- she described. I fell in and out of love with some of these leading characters, which I think is a testament of just how complex we are as, as human beings, right? And that's what I've loved about the book. And it has multiple twists. I know when we read books, we often think, oh, there's got to be just that one twist. With this specific book, there were about three or four twists, and all of them caught me by surprise. So I think, uh, for me, that's what makes it one of my favorites this year. So Amazon says the book became popular during COVID, uh, especially during lockdowns in 2020. So quite a gripping thriller. How do some of the characters develop as the book goes along? I, I heard you talk about the twists and turns uh, of, of this gripping book. How long did it take to, to, to read? I mean, if it's this gripping, I imagine not so long. Yeah, I mean, if the book is so gripping, I read it as every time I find an opportunity to. So this one it took me about yeah three weeks to finish uh, because I need to read at least a chapter a day. And that's how I often just schedule it. But how the characters develop. I mean, when I started reading this book, Blood Orange, I thought it's about this incredible lawyer who has just been given this big murder case because normally she's always been trusted with the small cases. So she's given this big murder case. And that's like in the opening chapter of the book. And then you think they're just taking us through her journey of just, you know, helping out this woman who has been accused of murdering her husband. And then you realize that there's another layer there. She actually is in a failed marriage. Um, and then there's another layer. She is a terrible mom. Um, she's addicted to alcohol. She's cheating on her husband. And that's just the central character uh, throughout the entire book. But there's other things that really bind uh, this particular lawyer, who's the central character, her husband. Um, and I don't want to spoil it for people that may consider reading Blood <laughs> Orange, but 
later on, there's something you learn about the husband whom until literally the last two pages of the book, I thought was the most honest man I've ever read about who was committed to her to his husband even when I mean to, to, to his wife, even when the wife was cheating on him. But you realize in the last two or three pages of the book that not so much. There's a big revelation and a plot twist there. Um, and for me, that's what really caught me by surprise. So, yeah, Harriet Tice tells the story of this woman who is a lawyer. He is helping. She's helping out this woman who has been accused of killing her husband. But also there's another twist around that particular murder. Um, someone is trying to protect somebody else. And, and yeah, it's all a story of people trying to protect each other. But the truth finally comes out at the end. I mean, this particular Blood Orange book for me like um, speaks to just how relatable it is. As adults, we've got our own careers and the people and some of the colleagues we meet at work, we don't know what their backstory is when they go home. Um, I mean, in, in the protagonist, uh, Alison Bailey's story, we're looking at somebody that is, you know, quite qualified, um, respected in her career, but at home doesn't have things together. So what has it taught you about relationships, uh, this particular book? So one, one, one thing, it's, the first thing for me is we are all complex as human beings. Because Alison, uh, Alison as, as you say, the, the central character, this lawyer, um, she's quite good at her job. And she gets to work and people think she's got this life thing figured out. Um, but she goes back to a husband who, yes, appreciates her, uh, but they haven't really, really connected um, at a loving level for the longest time because the marriage is failing. And she is a drunkard. Um, she's not good to her child. You know, she's missing certain appointments. Um, so that, that's one thing that even people at work don't know about her. But what I've realized is, in fact, every single character in this book has some complexity. I mean, the toxicity of some of the characters, but also the humanity of some of these characters is what really drew me to these characters. And that's why earlier I said I fell in and out of love with some of the characters, even with Alison. Yes, you look at her as a drunkard, as a cheat, but she's also a human being. You know, there's context around how she's even getting herself to be living a life like that doesn't justify it, yes, but when you get to know her as a human being, you get to understand the different layers and what's happening back at home that's influencing how she lives, you know, um, how the, the other layers of, of, of her lives that are packing up. So it just taught me just as human beings, we are all complex. We all have our issues to, to, to deal with and we all need to work on ourselves. And those complexities, of course, speak to a psychological thriller novel. It just makes all the right uh, ingredients in terms of getting a book like that. I mean, it reminds me of one um, I've read before called The Girl on the Train, which was later made a movie uh, by Paula Hawkins, uh, following the lives of three women, um, you know, one divorcee, one that idealizes their husband and all these complex relationships that we face as adults. Just to speak to that fact again, that we're not perfect. So which... Uh, type of reader should be picking up this type of book? Every type of reader um, should be picking up this book. Um, so if you love, um, so first of all, Harriet Tice uh, studied English at Oxford. She is an incredible writer and a storyteller of note. So uh, I enjoyed reading every single page. It was enjoyable to read. I loved it. Um, but on top of that, because of her use of the language and how she plays around with words, 
but 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 on top of that, uh, Mattel, for me is you know apart from the fact that she's an incredible storyteller, she's managed to really, in the midst of the complexities of you know these characters, she's managed to get you to see them as human beings and to get you to reflect on your own complexities and on what you need to work on um, um, with your personality, with you know, different layers in your life. So if you love an incredible thriller, if you love a crime thriller, you love you know, a, a writer who plays around with words and, and knows how to tell a story, um, this is the book for you. you know, I, I, I've learned so much just about, as you said, relationships. I've learned so much about you know, different kinds of obsessions because that's one thing that she also explores in the book. Um, So I would say anyone who's interested to be gripped um, over the next month or during the holidays, this is the book for them, Blood Orange by Eric Tice. I'm so happy there's there's like... um a new craving, if one could put it that way, for psychological thrillers, because a lot of the books has been around, um, you know, biographies or looking at self-help, and we've missed out on the stories, even though fictional at times, that grip us when it comes to books. But one thing that also, um, you know, made me focus a, a lot on this particular book, while I was doing the reading around it, I realized that the producers of Line of Duty, which is one of my favorite series on, on Netflix, World Production, were looking to make this particular book into a TV series and looking mm-hmm. at the story that you've explained, um, a gaslighting husband, uh, parental showboating, um, you know, having things figured out at work, but they fall apart when you're at home. I think it makes for a very great mm-hmm. story that could be turned into something great on TV. Do you like watching um, the productions from books that you've already read or would, would you rather keep it at reading the book and leaving it there? I'm a little skeptical about that. Normally, I just enjoy just reading the book um, because, yeah, there's a level of, like, it's very personal. You know, when I'm reading the book, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm getting to understand the characters much better. I decide for myself, um, you know, how to, you know, in their complexity, how to define them, how to relate to them. Um, so it's open. I interpret. So you don't want the director to do that for you. I don't want the director to do that for me. But having said that, I went to watch uh, an adaptation of Damon Galgat's book, The Promise. Uh, Damon Galgat is an incredible author. Um, his book, The Promise, won the Booker Prize in 2021. And I've had the opportunity to talk to him on the show about the book. And when I heard that they have turned that into a play, I thought, hmm. I'm not sure. And then our colleague, Africa Malani, told me, listen, I saw it in Cape Town. It's incredible. I went to watch it at the Market Theatre. And those that are interested, they can still go check it out because it's on until this week, later this week. All right. One to watch. Uh, want to watch their business book feature tonight joined in studio by natalie schooling the founder and ceo at enlighten cx Uh, following a thriving career in marketing natalie schooling founded enlighten cx in 2005 since then she has grown it into a multiple award-winning customer experience company recognized as one of south africa's leading cx enterprises natalie is an experienced customer service strategist trainer and improvement specialist with more than 25 years experience in the customer service experience industry and she joins the money show in studio tonight how does somebody become a customer experience specialist i mean 
I often, when I shop, you know, walk around, look at people in the shopping aisles, the decisions they have to make, you know, leaving the alcohol bottle to get <laughs> two loaves of bread, you know, the tough decisions that they make there. But how does one become uh, a customer experience specialist? So thanks, Matea, and thanks to all your listeners, and it's great to be here this evening. So the CX industry is is really new in South Africa. Um, there are very few sort of C, you know, you can't go to university and become a CX specialist. So CX is really around client experience, client or customer experience. So for those that have deep understanding in terms of the product, the solution, layered with great EQ and an enormous sense of caring and empathy. It's something that is innate in certain people who understand not only the, the business landscape, but equally as important, understands that customers actually drive business. And so for those people, they make the perfect candidate um, to enter into the CX space. Now, when you started your career, I'm sure, as you say, very new industry, you, were, you weren't looking at it at, I'm going to be a customer experience specialist. <laughs> How did you start out and which uh, some of the industries that you've worked in? Yeah, so I, my background is human resources and training, and I worked for a commoditized business. I'm not going to mention their name, but they're a staffing company. And you know, that was, you know, well into 1995. I worked for them for 10 years till 2005. And we were, in fact, a commodity business. So pretty much we always used to align ourselves with the state agencies. So you both, you know, everyone's fishing for the same you know, house or staff member, and you're all plugging it or marketing it to a specific segment of the market. And really the only way that we could differentiate in a commoditized business was to offer an incredible service. And service is very one-dimensional. So services, you know, like answering the phone in three rings or answering your email in five minutes. But you know, the, the service landscape has over the years evolved into understanding that, funny thing, people are human and that humans have uh, emotions. And so it's understanding your customer emotions and what's going to drive them to be loyal to your business understand them, and also to remain relevant to them. So I started off uh, in this commoditized industry, and I was very lucky at the time. I worked for an amazing boss, and um, she allowed me to run the business as I saw fit. So I ran the financial services division um, for this particular business. I had run about 2,500 temporary staff uh, that worked for me, I was entrenched in many different areas in the financial services um, industry. And what I did differently is that I did research, but I didn't do it myself. I outsourced that research to an independent person because I firmly yeah. believe you can't mark your own books, right? You can't For mark sure. your own homework. <laughs> so that gave me really deep understanding as to how my clients were feeling and how my temp staff were feeling. And I could then adapt our strategy around the input and the feedback I got back from both sets of clients, if you like it, because, you know, our temp staff, I saw them as clients, but so were the ones paying the bills. 
Financial services, when I think of that, I know there's a lot of complaints that come through on the phone, on the email. Somebody's account's not uh, working out or, you know, they've got a complaint about their account, the business that they're doing with you guys. Um, what soft skills are you learning at that particular time in your career that's helped you become who you are now? Oh, I, I mean, I have mentioned empathy, but that for me was the the thing that kind of differentiated who I was from my competition is that I deeply cared. And it wasn't lip service. It was I truly cared of what my temporary staff were saying because I knew that if they felt connected to what we did as an organization, I mean, they could have gone the ro- down the road to another organization that were paying them the same, you know, that basically would also get them the, a job. But it's about feeling connected. And that for me was, you know, the golden thread, if you will, um, that, that got them to rather work for us than the competition down the road. The business obviously sees you now as an asset because you're able to do this and keep and retain some of the great staff that you have to keep the customer experience at a certain level. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get to leave and go to greater heights or do they keep <laughs> you there for a long time? Well, yeah, I think that it's a good thing that people do move. Uh, you know, you, you don't want to be at a in a business for too long. I don't want to say this to my staff because I love all of them and you may not leave. <laughs> but it's important to... You know, keep keep it fresh, um, and obviously, if you love where you're working, you know, why move if you're happy? So it really is about staying motivated and focused. Now, going into customer experience, a very niche industry, like you've said, how does how did you carve that out from your own uh, career to say this is what I want to become? This is what I'm really good at. I'm uh, good at you know seeing the things that a business needs to build that customer trust and experience to make sure the brand is well trusted. Well, as you said in the beginning, I started in 2005 where service wasn't really important in South Africa. In fact, I spent five years wondering if I should go back into permanent employment. Uh, Those were a very difficult five years. And then come 2010 when um, the World Cup happened and suddenly South Africa was thrown into the focus of the international spotlight and I start to see a shift in terms of understanding how important client experience or customer service in those days, how important it was. And it really took five years for our business to gain traction. And so luckily, uh, it's now a flourishing industry internationally. How did you convince some of these businesses? Because a lot of uh, CEOs will tell you, I know my customers, I know the numbers, I know what they tell me. How do you pitch um, you know, to some of these businesses that have, haven't had a customer experience specialist as somebody who is you know, giving them advice on how to get more customers, how to retain them, and how to make sure they keep a certain standard? Well, we have all ears uh, when businesses start doing badly and they start to hemorrhage clients. Or customers, because obviously you've got to remember that in a B2B world, we're talking about clients and in a B2C world, we talk about customers. So when there's a sharp decline in customers or when from a B2B perspective, you know, your, your big clients, in other words, the 20% of your clients that give you 80% of your business, if you lose one, you're going to feel the pain. So that's a really easy 
sell, if you like, because at the end of the day, it's about relationships. It's about trust. And it's about making sure that you remain relevant to, to your business and the work that we do at Enlighten. So we cover quite a broad range of product or, or service offerings. So we do research, a lot of in-depth research, not on the fly, because on the fly research is basically a temperature check. It doesn't really give you proper understanding, deep understanding what your clients think and feel. We also do training. Uh, we do customer journey mapping. I'm not sure if you're aware of that term, but it's really looking from um, the outside in, in terms of the journey that your customer goes through and how you can improve that. And we also do a lot of strategy work for businesses. So it's across the board. So it's not a you can't just suddenly, it's not a band-aid, right? It's not, you can't suddenly decide one day that you're going to become customer-centric. It's an ideology that businesses really have to embody and it has to be part of their philosophy. You can't, you can't suddenly just flick a switch and go, right, we're customer-centric today. And off you go. It doesn't work like that. I mean, how was it then to try and have a metric for the value that your business brings to these different uh, clients, whether it's a business to business, um, you know, or trying to get in through to the customers? Because, um, you know, if, if it's an engineer, mm-hmm. the market has already put a value on what an engineer mm-hmm. is supposed to be paid. Or if it's somebody that's, um, you know, doing the IT for the business, there's already a mark on that. But as a customer experience specialist, uh, how, how interesting was it to try and to create do the, the RRI. Yeah. yeah. So with B2C, when your customer churn goes down, so you're actually um, getting more customers to spend more, you can measure that ROR, right? From a B2B perspective, it's so easy because you know, we go in and we talk to your, your customer or your client, should I say, and if the client says, oh, there's a problem and I'm not sure that I'm going to renew the contract with X, Y, and Z, we give our client that feedback real time and they're able to go in and to be able to speak to the client and 90% of the time, they're able to turn that around. So, you know, ask yourself, well, how big is that contract? There's the ROI. <laughs> it's a no-brainer. Really is a no-brainer. And then looking at, you know, you've created the value. At what point does the phone now ring off the hook to say, we'd like your services. We heard from company X that you've done great work for them and we'd like you on board as well. Well, the amazing thing is that, you know, past 2010, that's been happening. So we are well entrenched, you know, not only in South Africa, we've got clients in Australia, we've got clients in the Middle East, and we are hopefully going to be signing up some clients in Europe soon. So it's a really exciting phase of our business. And it's so, I was actually thinking to myself the other day, because I live in Cape Town, and I've just noticed, and maybe the World Cup's got something to do with the, the, the Rugby World Cup, but there's such amazing positivity when you go into a shop. I've just noticed that we've just improved our service um, to, yeah, over the last year or so. So I'm, I'm very proud of, of where we're going as a country. Well, the feature is how I make my money in conversation with Natalie Schooling, the founder and CEO of Enlightened CX. Join us after this for more. Motel Paribe on The Money Show. 6 to 8 p.m. 
We're in conversation with uh, Natalie Schooling, the founder and CEO of Enlighten CX. Of course, she is a consumer experience specialist and known quite around the world, featured in the International CX Hall of Fame in 2021, selected as one of the top 50 global customer experience influencers to follow in 2021. And she's also co-authored and launched South Africa's first business-to-business client experience handbook. An industry that you say is not relatively big, but one that's very, very important for businesses in South Africa. What are some of the um, you know, qualifications that people are coming in to into this industry? Earlier on, you said you can't really go to varsity for it, but it needs a, person, a special type of character. So tell us about those characters that have come in, engineers and different people that have come into the scope. So... For me, it's people with soft skills, right? So psychology, um, managerial experience in business. So we do a lot of research. So uh, graduates of research and marketing uh, would be yeah would be like perfect that. candidates uh, to come into such a role. And looking at this particular industry in South Africa, you said it was slow to start off, but now you're talking about international clients. How mm. different are um, you know, the two appetites for customer experience here in South Africa and the rest of the world? We haven't honestly found a huge difference, funnily enough. They, they all want information. They all want to understand their clients in a much deeper level than just, you know, having a web-based survey and, and trying to understand the results. So just in the nature of the business that we're in, the research that we do really unpacks very sort of much deep on a much deeper level what what clients and customers are thinking and okay i'm going to ask this in a two-pronged way from from a company ceo um what to look for in your business in order to improve the customer experience but also from a user a customer what to do to get a customer to get a business to be where it needs to be in terms of customer experience so from a ceo perspective unfortunately it's really easy to pull back from really understanding what your clients think, how they feel, what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, what are the things you need to do to make sure that they buy more, spend more, and and really remain loyal. And it takes a very special kind of CEO to realize that although they might not be directly responsible for getting that information, that that information is absolutely vital to staying relevant and remaining in business. And sorry, your second question, Matteo? <laughs> was from the customer side of things. How do we get businesses to improve? I mean, do we complain a lot? Do we try to speak to the manager? What should we do to, in order to make sure that some of our favorite brands, some of our favorite businesses uh, give us a quality customer experience? So a lot of people, if they're frustrated, and understandably so, and it really depends on the industry, right? So, for example, you know, if you're just a regular customer and you don't have a private banker and you can't get hold of somebody because of those damn call centers, um, you know, it gets super frustrating. And there's nothing worse. You know, it's always say your cell phone and your bank card are two really important emotional triggers, right? Because you need them both. Um it's for, well, it would be great if CEOs and businesses gave the opportunity for customers to complain easily. So in other words, give them the vehicle that they don't have to go onto social media and that they don't have to use that as an opportunity to complain. The easier it is for you to complain as a customer, 
the more likely you're going to be able to, well, you'll stay there, right, and and spend more. So my suggestion is that if you can't speak to a manager or somebody who's in charge, so that's the first port of call. If you can't do that, then obviously, you know, there's social media, there's Hello Peter, there are, there are a number of different ways to get their attention. But the more you invest in making sure that others get a better service, it's kind of going to serve in your favor as well. So don't keep quiet about it. Make sure that people understand your frustration and give them ideas, okay, in terms of how they can solve it. What are the things that they would need to do to make your life easier as a customer? And then looking at the businesses internally, what do you tell um, some of the employees in these companies when you've been hired to come and improve uh, the service about their roles in the company, how important their role is in making sure their holistic customer mm. experience of that brand is, is, is shone through? Mm. So everybody is in charge of client experience. Even if you're sitting at the back end of you, nothing to do with the customer. Everybody has a role to play. There's no one that has no role. And even if you're in a support role, what you do has a direct impact on, you know, your colleagues who actually at the end of the day have to service the customer. So it's very inclusive. And I say to everybody that everybody's a leader. Can you imagine if nobody had accountability? You know, that unfortunately often happens, and specifically I'm looking at our country where there's a lack of accountability. So I encourage people to be the leaders that they wish they had and to actually have accountability and to take the lead, even though they may not be a manager as such. You can make the difference. And a more personal question now, what kind of, customer is Natalie schooling uh, are you a customer that's always looking out what the brand is doing or you just normal you pick items like anyone else and go home <laughs> depends on the day of the week <laughs> does your job <laughs> get the, to the way Listen, you live it life. does obviously heighten obviously because what i do it does heighten my uh, sensitivity towards great customer experience and i mean we do celebrate when we find a particular, I mean, I'll give you an example. There's a fabulous guy called Eddie, uh, I've forgotten his surname. He works for Pick and Pay and Constantia. I mean, he is a gem. He's a manager. He's not a CEO or an executive. He leads by example. Uh, and he's, you know, he's packing trolleys. He's, you know, if there isn't somebody there to pack your groceries, Eddie is there to pack your groceries. He's there to help customers. So he's front and center. And for me, you know, Eddie is you know, amazing. And there's so many like him. Um, so we applaud those. And, and you know, so it's not, just about, it's not just about the bad news. It's also about the amazing service that a lot of providers give. Good job, Eddie. That was uh, Natalie Schooling, the founder and CEO of Enlightened CX, joining us for our feature tonight, How I Make My Money.